And here we are. Hey everyone, welcome to RPG R&D episode 7. We're, we're seven episodes deep. My name is Jess Geyer and I am here with my co-host Craig Campbell. Hello. And our special <laughs> guest co-host Matthew Orr. Hi, I'm special. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, Craig, do you want to explain a little bit about what RPG R&D is and then we'll introduce our, our guest co-host? Sure. Uh, the uh, we, we are a tripartite podcast. Um, three hosts, three topics. We're going to start with talking about some GMing stuff, um, kind of from the point of view of maybe giving advice to new GMs or reminders to uh, experienced GMs. Then we will talk about RPG design. And we're kind of taking the process through from concepting to um, finally getting the product into people's hands. And we're getting close to the end of that. Today we're going to talk about the product itself, the actual PDF or book or whatever it is that you're making. Um, and then we're going to talk about something else at the end. We'll find out about that in a little bit. Um, but first, Matthew, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do in the whole um, RPG world? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Matthew Orr, and uh, I'm co-owner of Wet Ink Games. Uh, we make <laughs> we make games. Uh, we've, we've published a few games. Um, we kind of have ended up being uh, like alternate history kind of games uh so i think that um uh, uh that's just sort of our wheelhouse like we're also kind of looking for like um places that nobody else had done so we our first publication was a um uh, an anthropomorphic diesel punk game set in the interwar period of europe so there's a, a it, it's very very niche but uh it, it was a, it was definitely, um, if that's what you like, it, it's, it takes a lot of boxes if that's what you like. Uh, <laughs> we've also done Weird War One, not Weird, not World War Two, but World War One, uh, with, you know, Elder Tour and stuff like that. And uh, we've done like a Roman Empire period game. So uh, that's kind of our, kind of our, I don't know if it's going to be our shtick forever, but it's definitely what's working for us right now is uh, making these kind of games uh, that are that are that way. And uh, those are all and, uh, around the game space. Uh, otherwise, I uh, I like 200 word RPGs, tiny little tiny little RPGs, and uh, currently the convention coordinator for the IDBN, which I think. Uh, so we're all all members of that so. the indie game developer network so yes. matthew is focused on finding ways to get the igdn involved with different online things right now because of <laughs> yeah. the world we live in where there aren't physical co uh, uh conventions but those are coming so you're gonna those are coming right? you're gonna get so it you're gonna I'm get gonna, a chance uh, yeah i'm gonna get to, yeah, to ease yeah. us all back into that yeah so. you took on the job at a interesting time it's yeah difficult, yeah interesting right. time interesting time like i didn't know <laughs> one of the selling points when i was propositioned to take on the role was like oh and there won't even be any conventions in 2020 mm. you won't have to do anything tell you that okay <laughs> in, <laughs> instead you're breaking ground 
like you're looking right, for other right. opportunities, which is which has got to be kind of exciting and fun to like just try out different stuff and talk to uh, online convention uh, developers and seeing like what what is there that can get indie games in the spotlight. Um, certainly, certainly. Like the, we did the last month, we did the um, or earlier this month. It feels like it's been six yeah. weeks ago, but I think it was three weeks ago. Um, we did the IGDN participated in the. Um, Gen Con Spring Showcase, which is something they've never done before, which was a weekend of Twitch streams. And, you know, we I was on there to talk about some of the IGDN members' products and stuff like that. So, yeah, that was all completely new to everyone. It's never been done before. Yeah. Trail, yeah. Trail, Matthew Orr, Trailblazer. Put right, that on your right. resume. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. All right. How about the resume we... that I that I don't have. <laughs> Um, how about we roll into uh, talking a little bit uh, about GMing, specifically about um, evocative description and bringing the world to life at the table. Uh, any Either of you want to start us off? I'm bad at this, so uh, I'm bad at it. I'll, I'm going to leave it there. I'll, maybe I'll talk about why I'm bad at it later. But okay. <laughs> I'm interested in what Matt has to say about um, building in an alternate history world um, oh, and yeah. using evocative jamming styles in those cases. Cause I, I've done, I've done that and it's difficult. Yeah. Uh, I, when I think about, I, when I think about the evocative gaming, gaming descriptions and, and like kind of getting the players in, like it is kind of, um, I had a particular, I had a particular story of a, a pretty good failure that I kind of recovered from that I can share. But to, uh, to really answer your question first, like, I think it's, um, I think for what I've, for what I've worked on, like, it's almost like the, the twist of the alternate history is what you kind of fo end up focusing on. So like, oh, yeah, yeah, our World War One game, it's a French little village, you know, there's like the little steeple and like the guy with the little cart of hay and stuff like that. But also the shadow under the cart is alive and it's crawling its way towards you, mm -hmm. you know. So like <laughs> you kind of you kind of just focus on the element that makes it different, that mm -hmm. that kind of um, that, that that jumps that part out, you know. Um, I feel like that would be applicable to a lot of genres where, you know, there's a baseline of understanding of things like it's a medieval world. And so there's, yeah. oh, there's a castle and, you know, there's a king in there and blah, 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 blah. And there's, you know, an evil wizard who is. Right. <laughs> and so you, you can kind of throw a lot of the focus on the things that, that kind of make the world what it is. Like what, what's the, when you think of the game, what is, what does, you know, what are the things you think of and, and making sure to throw a spotlight on those things and giving description and being verbose and um, not just saying, well, there's a wizard, but there's, you know, um, uh, there's an eldritch uh, master who, uh, you know, who wears these flowing robes inscribed with uh, glowing purple runes. And um, like my, my big go-to on this is language, is vocabulary. Mm -hmm. um, and building out and using, you know, using the five dollar words, and uh, because to just say he's a wizard in robes is well, like, right? Nobody's got red. I've got a. I've got I've got a bathrobe. You mean like everybody? Like who, who doesn't <laughs> have a robe? The vermilion, the cerulean robe. Yes. Um, 
So uh, I'm going to put a wizard wearing a bathrobe in my next game, just because <laughs> that sounds hilarious. Not to sidetrack, but back to Matthew. If you were, you sounded like you were headed toward a story. Yeah. Oh, well, when when I first knew that this was the topic, like I immediately thought of this one, the one time that um, this was a number of years ago. It was the first thought that came to mind on this topic. So I was describing, it was a game of uh, Apocalypse Prevention Inc., which is from Third Eye Games. And it's um, it's like one part Men in Black, one part uh, Hellboy, one part, uh, I don't know, what else has it got in there? Like um, X-Files-y kind of stuff. You know, you're trying to prevent an apocalypse by managing the demon population of Earth. Um, and you're like secret agents about it. So anyway, there was a, the agent, my team, I was running the game, team went in to like this, this thing. And there had been like, a, it was either a missing person or a murder. I don't remember what they were investigating, but they found a safe. And my intention was to describe that the safe was a red herring by describing how utterly mundane the items in the safe were. And I, there's like a player who's sitting right next to me who's like writing down the list of like every single <laughs> item. Like, no, no, was it, was it, which edition of the book was it? And I'm like, oh my goodness, I've just opened a can of worms here about like, like th this player has taken this in another thing. Um, so in that moment, like my, my specific description of like, it's like, a, I think one of the items was like, it was a, it was like a, it was a book about like, crafting like woodcraft but it had been like annotated by someone else to make it seem as if the book was about the kennedy conspiracy assassination <laughs> stuff okay it, this is what i said i was like and the person is like that's got to be important and i'm like no it's it, it's it's irrelevant to the case like um <laughs> I put in all of those details to make you realize that none of them lined up with what you were actually here to investigate. And instead, I was like, once I knew that they were not going to let this go, and they like, I think the guy took all the items out of the safe, and like he was carrying them around. And so it's like, <laughs> all right. So I'm like, okay, I realize now my mistake. So this is the recovery part of it, where it's like, all right. So I'm going to write the history of every single one of these items, and like, turns out they're all magical items and they're all like super valuable if you know exactly the right person to talk to and that's why they were in the safe and like so let's do the history and like if they investigate this then they're going to run to get run up against this and if they go to for this then they're going to run up against this and like then i had this whole list of like story points which i then some of them got investigated and that was part of our campaign later on but like i um definitely I created my own red herring, basically, uh, <laughs> unintentionally. As soon as you said that you were trying to point out that they were not important <laughs> items, I knew exactly where you were going with that. Because players just have this, and I have this habit as a player as well, just like grabbing on to the most minuscule, unimportant things the GM never intended to make important. And what you did by turning them into plot points of their own when, when the players just won't let go. It's a good strategy to handle that. And that's a trap that I fall into sometimes because like I said, I'm, I'm bad at this evocative description. Um, I like to get to the, the dialogue and things like that um, rather than the, the, the scenery. Um, although I do think the scenery is important a, a lot of the time. Um, and so when I do describe things, 
my players tend to think, oh, it must be important. <laughs> She's describing it. So that it's a trap that I've fallen into before. But I've also had players that are like, okay, I'm going to take some books off the shelf. What books are they? Mm. And then now I'm like, uh, so that's how Magic and Me volumes one through 30 got introduced to one of my campaigns. <laughs> <laughs> they, they kept looking for books. They wanted to find these nonsense books that they oh, made man. me put in the game they gotta get, a set of, they, gotta get they gotta get them all now that's... yeah that's what they wanted every bookshelf if i even oh. hinted that there might be a bookshelf oh it's a library Ooh, Finally, books. The first edition. <laughs> so the takeaway is detail <laughs> um can certainly help to uh to to help the the, the setting and the description of what you're dealing doing with uh, come alive um but there is a, a line to walk <laughs> with players who might latch on to something that you know like you give a little i give a little throwaway detail to something to, to kind of set the scene but then the players latch on and that like that npc or that location or something suddenly becomes very important to them they think that there must be much more um importance to it it must be central to the storyline um and when that's the case uh you know sometimes it, it's best to do what matt Matthew did which was like you know okay well make it important to the storyline like let it become that um and sometimes you know you can kind of slap that back down and say no you you got like enamored of this NPC that I happen to you know describe the fact that his uh, hair is parted weird <laughs> just just to kind of just just to kind of point out that the character is kind of an odd duck and you suddenly yeah. became really enamored with the character and I'm not planning to do too much more with them Oh, what's up with his head, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's a, you can almost, like, there's another way to go about it, too, where, um, because evocative descriptions, like, GMs have a lot of work to do at the table. And so if you can push some of that onto the players, that makes it easy for you. So actually, um, I think I like, um, kids on bikes for this because it it, it tells you like it, it's basically equal like it's basically a 50 50 like half of the time you tell them what they see when they open the door and then the other half of the time they're like oh, i knocked down the door and you just sit back and you say like well what do you find and then they have to describe what they found in the room and the old creepy house that you were previously describing like you you know and you know it, you either didn't know or you know how you're gonna doesn't matter what they find because it's going to be interrupted by your next scene or whatever but like i think it's sometimes especially in a game like kids on bikes where you're supposed to be trading back that narrative that narrative uh dialogue uh, you know then then oh that's what they found in the room that's great i can run with that you know and um it isn't all on you it doesn't have to be all on you to do it yeah that there's an obstacle you have to overcome and it's one that i i have to hurdle over all the time um when it comes to things like that both as a player and a gm is knowing that you have the right to take ownership over the details of the game and like me i have i have a little bit of social anxiety going on i don't want to like step on anybody's feet um so especially when i'm a player or if i'm playing in a like a gm-less game it, it, like I have to remind myself that this is the purpose of the game so we can all tell this story together. Um, so if you are a new GM, it's just know that it, it's, I've been GMing since I was 13 and it is still a hurdle I have to jump over all the time. And one of the things, another thing that makes it difficult for me is 
I want things to be realistic in a way. And I'm, and I like, there's a little voice in the back of my head that tells me like, oh, they know more about 18th century pirate ships than you do, Jess. Like, <laughs> but that's probably not true either. And even if it is, it's, you know, your game, you have ownership over it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's part of the reason why I'm, I'm bad at description, not just because I, I'm also scatterbrained and can never remember to describe things. <laughs> um, I'm going to fall back in to talking about vocabulary a little bit too, and talking about the words that you use um, because the, the words themselves, and this, this can go toward RPG design as well. This is something I've made conscious efforts to become uh, better and better at over time when I'm designing and writing stuff up. Um, and you can use it when you're jamming as well, which is um, if you go to describe someone doing something, um, for example, and you pick the word that is the boring word, don't use that word. The character did not walk across the street. They sprinted across the street. They the meandered across the street. They skipped across the street. Um, and that like that gives the character some character. Um, gives them <laughs> like you know a, a style. Um, it presents them in a certain light. Um, you can you know take it even further with things like you know um, you know you 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 go to meet your contact and you. you see him on the other side of the street and he sprints across the street to you and asks you what's going on and then like now the person has suddenly been drawn into like oh this person is talking very fast i'd like this is there's an urgency like there what's going on in this world that why is he why is it urgent why, what's important about that um and the players put on the spot to kind of answer quickly or the you know to pass it off to another player to have them answer quickly or um you know kind of engage with the 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 scene in the way that you've presented it which is with a level of urgency. Um, I love pauses because I think there's you can milk a lot of emotion and um, and uh, kind of immerse somebody in a situation with a pause. You're playing a horror game and your characters have just finished talking to the old man in the creepy old house and he's um, escorted you back out to leave. And you walk out the door onto the front porch and he stands at the door for a moment and looks at you. And he closes the door. <laughs> um, and that, that, you know, sets a stage. That's like, you know, well, okay, like I'm now I, as a player, I'm kind of like, well, why did he pause? Was that the GM trying to think of what to say next? Or was there a deliberate, like, <laughs> it, it sounds like the old man looked at you for a little while before he closed yeah. the door like maybe he was going to do something else maybe he was sizing you up maybe he was deciding something there's subtext to it and there's a lot of yeah. immersion there's a lot of immersion that can come out of subtext like that yeah I, yeah i like it i like it i was thinking about and um, um the that that word choice goes into like even writing descriptions of monsters i'm thinking about um never going home which is my our wedding games uh, you know world war one horror game and I, I i can't call to mind a specific example but definitely if you're describing like some bevy of undead soldiers like you know if they're shambling around that shambling is great but like if you kind of if you can think of a different word that you know the 
and describe the creature's flesh as glistening or, you know, that, that it has an undulating uh, proboscis, you know, anything that, you know, like it gives more specific description right there in the book of like how, the way it moves and, and, and how it interacts with the world, um, you know, and that's, that's, uh, you know, that's helpful writing it down to give that to the table like, both the players and the characters then have those descriptions about like what makes it you know helps to visualize what is what they have seen you know if you, if you just write it down for them you know in very specific terms you know there's a lot of evocative adjectives and you can prepare yeah. and you can prepare some of that you know i was like just going to say that mm -hmm. if you know you're going to be dealing with like a particular villain and you want the description of the villain to stick you know the the villain's hair is not black. It's coal black. Mm. Um, it's ebony. It is blowing in the wind with whispers of midnight. Um, you know, it, it, the, everything about any of those descriptions kind of sets, uh, like, you know, kind of like gives the, that, that particular villain S um, um, a, a different feel. And, um, you know, you can, and you can, you know, you can prepare like the little turns of phrase or just like words that you want to use. And you don't have to do a lot of this um, in a given game session. If you do it for a handful of things that are going to kind of stick in people's minds that are items or people or places that you consider that are kind of important to the story or that are important for setting the, 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 the tone of the game, um, you know, players will pick up on the importance of the items or the people. Um, and in some cases with things that are more about just presenting a good feel and tone of the game, they'll, they'll latch on to you. You know, when you use certain words to describe what night is like, like that's what night is like in this horror game that you're describing. Like there's, um, the air isn't cold, it bites. Mm. Right. And it's a horror game, and so there's creatures that bite. You describe the air as biting, so it puts the, I, the the word bite in people's minds, and it makes people think about, well, what else is going to bite me? Um, and <laughs> you know, you can you can take it in a lot of directions. Metaphors and similes are your friend. Um, anthropomorphization um, is your friend. Um, give things human qualities that people relate to and have uh, baggage. You know, like they they associate things with like the the word bite, for example. Yeah, it has all the connotation in the words. Uh, I, again, it's one of the things that I struggle with. Um, I can do it in writing. So I rely on a lot of handouts uh, when I when I play games that do require a little bit more description. And and there you can make sure that you get all those pertinent details involved in a handout. And there is just something so lovely about handing someone a little slip of paper when they pick up that one weird item on a table in the middle of a an old abandoned chateau and uh then the player has to read about the description and then tell the other members of the table kind of their filter of it um i also <laughs> like that's a really good that's a really good method i like that yeah uh i learned that from another gm who i admire very much one of my gms um and i've also relied a lot on um mapping things out on paper ahead of time because I have a hard time visualizing things from my head just there. I need to kind of put it out on paper. I like to do theater of the mind though a lot when I'm playing, but having maps does remind me 
to say what is there for my players. Um, yeah, I just I just have a really hard time with the going from my imagination that I can see to making sure everyone else can see it. I sometimes forget that not everyone is um, psychic like me. <laughs> and I can just you know pinpoint right in there. Right. I drew the map. But, it's, I drew the, it's up here. They just, yeah. just get the map. It's, it's crystal clear. <laughs> it's the castle. <laughs> <laughs> this this castle, the one the one we're in, the one I'm talking about. Yeah, I, I, it's it's something that I I still um, I, I I still struggle with from from day to day. I struggle with it in my creative writing too. Sometimes just like. Like, yeah, I'll get it. I'll keep going. I like to get to the, the heart of things, which for me is for me is dialogue and action. Um, There's always room to improve. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I've described a lot of things and, and Matt's described a lot of things. And um, that doesn't no, mean that I points. that doesn't mean that either one of us does them consistently and well on oh, every game session. Sure. Everybody has off game sessions. Some some games, you know, you can turn a phrase and weave a tail like nobody's business. <laughs> and some games you're like, and then the monster attacks. <laughs> well, it bites you next turn <laughs> yeah. um but you know making making the effort here and there can help and um if you set an, like like something we've talked about with nearly every one of these gming sections sec, uh, part uh, segments is if you as the gm do certain things it gives the players permission and encourages them to try to do it too so you'll have players that will describe not just well i attack with my sword they'll describe how their character swings the sword and licks the blade afterwards and how they how they you know do their little flare a little bit of panache um when they when they strike the killing blow and and those types of things will come out and that will help to um bring more description to the table around, you know, all the way around the table. Or you could just LARP and it's all there. <laughs> you you kind of have to. <laughs> oh. Well, do you, uh, I, I have a lot of really good pointers now for the next time I run a game. I'm going to like make this a goal. Um, I'm going to try, I'm going to try throwing out my $5 words, maybe even a, a $10 word mm-hmm. here and there. And uh, I, I really also like Matt's um, point about getting, like that that 50 50 thing you talked about with kids and kids on bikes um making the players describe things more because i love giving my players agency like that yeah. so no oh, i should delegate details um well our uh next topic though is about from a game designer point of view the product that you're putting in front of people the 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 finished product the finished product it's uh yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like I can, I can jump right in because like <laughs> this is uh, it's exciting. It's, um last year, just I think I think I'm feeling the excitement because last year I ran we ran we ran two successful Kickstarters last year, but it's taken it's taken a while. But like one of them is like they're both at the printer now, uh, and different they're different scales and stuff like that. But like. You know we're like gonna get books like next month like after you know with all the delays from 2020 and you know some of them unavoidable some of them uh you know unexpected and whatever it's like but finally the thing is gonna arrive you know um so i am excited about like that final step when you like you open a box and there's like a bunch of things and like i saw this art and i wrote these words and like i edited yeah. this section 
and like told I requested this change to this table. Like here it is on a piece of paper. Um, it hits different. It's so does. cool to have that physical product. Like I, I do a lot of PDFs and, and all of that. And that's one thing to have out in the world, but getting a copy of the book that you, you wrote, or even if you wrote like a campaign for something, which I've done in the past too, just seeing your name, Ooh, there's me. Right. It's here it is. Right. It's real. It exists in the world. <laughs> seeing your name in print is, mm -hmm. uh, is, is special. Even if, I mean, maybe it eventually, it hasn't worn off for me yet. Like that, maybe it does eventually. I don't know. I doubt it. Like, I think everyone will love that feeling forever. Oh, it's exciting to get, it's always exciting to get the physical product. Um, you know, it's really stressful that, that though. It's really stressful making sure that physical product actually looks the way it does. There's a lot that goes into a like a print product, PDF products. There's a lot that goes into that too. Cause regardless of whether you're working in that print medium or that digital medium, um, in fact, sometimes PDFs, you have a lot other, a lot of other things to think about because screens are different and all of that. Um, there's accessibility issues, but I think when we were sending Moonpunk to the printers for the first time to get our, our proof, it was sent back a couple times because I didn't apparently know anything about the the amount of ink. <laughs> like, I don't even know what it's called anymore. Um, I've, I've deleted that memory from my brain. But I had to learn this whole new InDesign feature to make sure that there wasn't too much ink. On 240% ink coverage, maximum. Yes, it was ink coverage. Okay, I wasn't just making that up. That's good for me to know. <laughs> no, that's important. Um, if you're, and, and when it comes to any of your, any product that you're doing, if there's a physical product, there's always going, and a digital product for that matter too, any of them, keep in mind if you're, if you're moving toward that, there's going to be requirements for making the thing correctly, whether it's making digital and making it so that it can be read by screen readers um, and is, you know, accessible in that way that, uh, uh, that the, the colors and everything are going to show up because everything on a screen is RGB, um, red, green, blue. Um, when you go to physical products, it's CMYK. Um, what is it? What's cyan, magenta, uh, yellow, yellow, black. <laughs> and uh, that 240% ink coverage is so you've got four colors and you can have up to 100% of each color. So you could have 400% ink coverage, which is if you had all four colors spraying maximum ink onto the page. Um, and you can't do that because that ink will um, not dry into the page and it'll smudge and run. And, and that's what the 240% tops is. Yeah, because turns it, out ink is wet. <laughs> yeah. Wet. Um, so <laughs> like learn, learn, your, uh, learn, learn the, the, the requirements for whatever product that is that you're, you're producing. And the more different types of products you do, the more requirements you have to deal with. Yeah. Um, it's worth thinking a little bit um, when you're looking to put together a product, um, what is your intention with the product? What like what product or ver what what different products you put out presents you as a designer and a publisher and your your little company, whether it's by your name or a you know you've got a name for the company or whatever. It presents you to the game community in the gaming world in a certain way. If you do a lot of PDFs that are um, primarily relying on stock art and um, and some a little bit of graphic design flair that presents it that's a certain type of product that and there's nothing wrong with it but it's going to be viewed a certain way it's going to um, 
it's going to be perhaps easier to put together um, and less stressful. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, ah, but, indeed. you know, if, if you want to ramp it up and, and get um, more uh, detailed artwork and um, kind of take the production value up higher into uh, different realms, it's also going to kind of like people are going to look at you and look at the products that you're producing in a certain way. Um, mm -hmm. if you're producing accessories, like if you've got cards and dice and things like that too, that's going to like, you're going to, you know, the more, the more kind of varied stuff that you do like that, you start to become seen as I think more, um, diverse and like committed and like you're involved more. Not that you necessarily are compared to somebody who's just doing PDFs. Um, but there's, there's a perception. And well, so, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a question of, yeah. of, and once that perception's out there, now you're kind of in the position of having to maintain that perception. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's it's production values, you know? Like, you can have a show that has really high production values and terrible writing, and it's bad. But, like, the set design and the costume design is great, you know? Like, they're Academy Awards for costumes for terrible movies. That, <laughs> yeah. Because those are different things. And um, so... Suicide Squad. <laughs> Uh, I, this, I, um, I can't remember if it won one year, but like, um, 12 monkeys, which I is actually a movie that I enjoy, but like here, like down the runway at the Oscars that year was the guy in his like weird sci-fi encounter suit walking behind like the Regency dresses, you know, cause that's, that's a costume that it got nominated. Um, uh, but, but I mean, the production values, like what Craig was saying, like, the cost is in all that stuff like because it all has to be designed it all has to, if it's art if it's custom cards like i know wedding games has done custom cards i know Nerdburger has done custom cards like somebody's got to draw the ace and the king and the queen and the jack and you've got to get somebody to graphic design the little the little uh um like it's not a sigil the, what is the, it it's the pips a, and suits well, yeah, the pips and suits, what they look like on the on the, the corner. You in know, the card and back and everything. In the yeah. card, in the back, card yeah. back, yeah. So that's like to produce a deck of cards takes money because you have to pay someone to do all that work. But then if you're sitting at a booth that like, oh, we, we have this deck of cards here like that we've made. It's like it is. it does kind of increase that. It's hard not to say legitimacy because certainly somebody who is could be a legitimate game designer and making good games and sitting there with your i printed these out on my own desk jet and stapled them together and you can buy it for a dollar you know like that might be a great game but it's going to catch the eye when you spent the time to have it laid out professionally and have new art done for it and have it printed at a high quality um, where you have to worry about 240 percent ink coverage you know like when <laughs> once you're at that like level of the industry you know that those are it is more time it is more work but it it does make a suite of products that you can display of like no look we're, we're really trying to be a real thing here um yeah i think one of the one of the things you have to really consider when you're a, a fledgling game designer and you're putting out like a game on your own for the first time is having some realistic expectations for yourself as well if you look at for example, D and D, it is not just one person putting out that oh, book. Yeah, it's not even five people. If you look at the credits, it's so many hands have gone onto this product, 
And unfortunately, in the industry, people are expecting products of, of that really high quality. Now, there are some really small indie teams that are doing some beautiful, awesome things. And really what goes into that, like if you have a really good layout designer, it's going to bring your game to the next level. It's going to look so nice. If you have a really good artists on board, it's going to look really great. Um, and there, there are some uh, layout designers that work with stock images and make them like look like absolutely wild and, and beautiful and perfect. Um, and uh, we, I was lucky enough that I already knew how to use InDesign. So I did most of the layout, um, although we did have another layout designer, Jammy, um, from uh, Sword King Games um, did some of our layout as well. And like their layout blew mine out of the water. Um, but if you don't know how to do layout design, uh, my my big recommendation to you is to watch a lot of tutorials on YouTube, try to <laughs> attend some classes, um, like try, learn learn before you put it out and always make sure you have other eyes on it. Uh, when we were laying out, uh, Moonpunk, I tried some things that I thought would be interesting and, and quirky for the punk feel. And Alex, my my partner, um, looked at it and said, this is giving me a headache. Is it crooked? I'm like, yeah, I made it crooked. I'll change it. <laughs> I thought it was going to be good. <laughs> so always making sure that you have another set of eyes on it. But again, back to the realistic expectations, right. know what you as a person and designer can do, know what your budget is as you're going into it. And don't go into this expecting to churn out a, a Dungeons and Dragons player's handbook when you don't have the resources that Hasbro has. It's yeah. not going yeah. to happen. Right. And, and I don't, I don't know if you've, maybe your next episode is going to be about Kickstarter, but like, the some of these if you're getting to the point as a designer where you're looking at like okay so we have to hire a graphic designer for 120 pages and we need 10 pieces of art that goes into your kickstarter budget that mm -hmm. you don't have to like necessarily have cash on hand but it has to be part of the budgeting of the project mm -hmm. and and then you get down to like cost benefit analysis right you mentioned craig earlier like i worked have worked with a lot of people who really like OSR games. And there's a lot of people who really like that gritty sort of like handmade. Uh, that's, that's, that is the aesthetic and that's what they like about it. And oh, Craig, uh, you disappeared. You're... Yeah. Craig, hopefully, hopefully this continues. Yeah. Uh, keep, keep going. Keep going, Matt. Oh, there he is. Um, He's back. But the, the, <laughs> talking about that like if you want to do it all yourself and you're not an artist and you can get there are people that do art for very low cost for the use of clip art um and you can you can put it together and you can watch the videos and teach yourself in design or or one of the free software packages that that is it doesn't have quite as many features to it you know but it's free you know it, it and you can get started and i mean i'm happy to be at a point where i am worried about like the texture on the cover of the book of the hardcovers <laughs> that we're going to make you know like that's a decision that i've like gotten to the point where where we get to make those decisions is it going to be 
leatherette or is it just going to be cardboard that's kind of stamped with like a leather texture you know like it but you don't have to start there like yeah absolutely start smaller than that mm -hmm. but what i what i meant by doing the kickstarter is like you don't have to have it in, you don't have to cash in hand you budget for these things because everybody that works in your project needs to get paid and the resources need to be paid for the art and stuff like that so and maybe that's comes into like i said i don't know if you talked about kickstarter or going to talk about kickstarter but that that feels like a, a very long conversation that uh maybe yeah. a, a a larger focus point for maybe a bigger episode exactly or, i just want to mention just, it that just like, about that yeah which is also why we're not going into like how do you uh, everything about getting graphic design and yeah. layout done and everything about artwork and, sure. and art direction and everything. I think those are probably going to become um, individual topics at some point. Um, but yeah. yeah, so, so but, stay, stay but tuned. That's a teaser. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. a teaser. Right? These things cost money, but like you don't have to have it in your own wallet. Like you mm -hmm. can, can be part of the budget of the funding campaign when you're getting ready to produce the book. Right. And, and, and there is like, with the way that Morgbork has gotten so much publicity and Thousand Year Vampire has gotten so much good press for its, it's entirely clip art in that book, but it's been, it's not public clip art. It's like uh, public domain images that have been reworked and retouched by the, the designer of that game, whose name I forget at this moment, but you, you know, no, no new art, no new art in, in scare quotes here was produced for that game. It was just composited together by the guy who did it. Like people that are going to back your book, potentially future projects, uh, you know, they're 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 looking for you to say like, oh, look, I put all this, I want to put all this work in, I want to do all this graphic design. That's what it's going to cost to do it. Mm -hmm. So that's why the price is at this point, you know, mm -hmm. um, and. I think a lot, especially on a crowdfunding thing where almost everyone who's crowdfunding has disposable income, like that's what they want. They want a high quality product. Um, yeah. And you can think, you can think too about your, your minimum viable product mm. as well as a designer. So you can like here, here's the base game. This is what we, we would have. I would really like to have all of these custom cards. That's going to be my I, again, this is something related to Kickstarter, particularly the way that would be my stretch goal. And if I if I fundraise this much more money, we can do that. I can I can, et cetera, et cetera. There's there's a lot that goes into it. Um, but really, again, setting yourself some realistic expectations, and that's not only like with what you can do as a designer working on your own or with a team, but also the realistic expectations of people who purchase games because they do have expectations for what a product will like what a professional product looks like i love zines don't like zines are great there are a lot of professional great looking zines out there and there are a lot of zines that are meant to look like dirty punk zines that you get in a basement bar they're great they're awesome um but if that's not what you want your brand to be like um, to use a dirty corporate word that I hate, um, <laughs> or like just consider that as part of your expectations as well. It costs money, unfortunately, to to print paper, and paper costs yeah, have gone up. <laughs> physical products cost cost up. Well, <laughs> and to speaking to the minimum viable product, you can also take the the tactic of like when if you're starting out, like maybe maybe your first product or two is just PDF just to get your feet wet, just to figure out all me. the stuff you're going to do. And then maybe you do 
um, a product where you're going to offer a PDF and a print-on-demand book, which isn't quite as, uh, you know, which is more work, but isn't like doing a print run. You know, I, I, I've done two print runs uh, for books, but I did half a dozen products before I took a shot at doing a print run mm -hmm. for anything um, because I felt like I, like I wasn't ready to to deal with the uh, the complexity of the added complexity of dealing with print runs and in, in like you know a, a really really nice physical product, um, mm -hmm. so uh, there's uh, you know there's a lot of different tactics you can take. There's ways you can approach what you're doing and figure out what it is that um, you can kind of ease yourself into it. Especially if you're starting out, you're always learning. You know, if you're self-publishing, you're always learning all these other little things. You're always learn you're putting always. different hats putting different hats on and you can do them incrementally you don't have to like you don't have to spend a month or two just powering through learning everything and now i'm a publisher and i can do anything um you know you you learn how to direct an artist um kind of in a bubble when you need to you learn how to set up a website when you need to you learn how to take the step into print on demand when you need to um, so take it at the pace that you can, um, you can handle in the time that you have available to you and in alignment with your goals for what you're trying to do. If you're trying to get to the point of being a full-time designer, you might have to move a little faster <laughs> on things and, and kind of get there. If you're, if you're doing it, um, as a, I hate the term hobbyist, but if you're doing it as, let's call it a side gig, um, then you know you you don't necessarily have to move as fast. You can move at whatever speed you're comfortable. Like the, that game can be done when it's done, um, and you can do the level of production that you feel comfortable with. And there's always the possibility of doing a second edition when you get more skills as a game designer and uh, more skills in layout. You can always do a second edition. And. Yeah. Um, I learned this from doing uh, the the Capers Deluxe hardcover. Um, when it if you're if you're utilizing Kickstarter, um, you can you can kickstart the same thing over and over again as long as each product's a little different, as long as there's a little something different. The only difference between the old the original Capers and the new one is that it's a printed version that has like fancy bookmarks in it and it has printed end sheets. Um, and so it's on nicer paper, um, and so it you know has better color. Um, it is otherwise exactly the same game. <laughs> I'm gonna wake my dog up real quick. He's snoring, Boulder. Don't snore. Those end pages that look like newspapers—that's amazing. Like I love it. <laughs> that book is is. That was that was suggested by Owen. Um, based on another game book that he had seen, and I was like, "Oh well, now I'm designing a newspaper, um, a 1920s style newspaper, and you know, um, that's that features it, it. It's it's intended to be kind of like a like a small print run newspaper, like that that just focuses on um, capers news, like super powered people news. <laughs> um, so yeah, like there's you can you can always just kind of incrementally. You could start with making a PDF of something, and then a year later decide, okay, now I'm going to do the the, fun, the the crowdfunding to make a POD version and get a chance mm -hmm. to to meet to re reach new audience that wanted that book that weren't on board with just getting a PDF because that's not really their thing. Yeah, and speaking of newspapers, the best way to learn about design and layout and printing is to be a high school journalist and then a college journalist and then teach journalism. Uh, that has taught <laughs> me so much. <laughs> So much about what looks good and how much things cost and 
how to wrangle ten teenagers into printing a paper. Oh, Which and works. how long that takes. Is it ten 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 adults who are only doing this as a side gig or ten teenagers? Which one I, is worse? I bet the ten adults probably have less motivation, to be honest. <laughs> Unless you're paying them pretty well. The teenagers don't get paid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, they're, yeah. All right. Should so, we shift gears? Yeah, sure. I think so. Our potpourri topic suggested potpourri. by Matt. Yeah. Uh do I get to interrupt? Okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll. History podcasts. Take it away, Matt. That's it. That's it. <laughs> oh, I I listen to a lot of podcasts, like uh, because especially if I'm doing housework. Like housework is like mm -hmm. my time to put my earphones in and listen to podcasts. And I really like history podcasts. So uh, I've got. I've got a number of recommendations uh, if uh, anyone has, or we can just, I don't know if you want me to talk about one or if you want let's, to. Um, let's, let's hit on a few and what you like about them and, yeah. and give people some suggestions. Let's, let, let's see if we can get listeners to, to, uh, to try out a few, you know, like if, if you give us a handful of suggestions, people are going to find one that really speaks to them and they're going to go check that out. Sure. Um, so one that is pretty I, I don't know. It's just the one that like comes to mind uh, first, maybe. And, and I don't know. It's um, it, it's there's so there's so many that are good. Uh, but <laughs> he's overwhelmed, ladies, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, and people. Which one is my just... favorite? I don't have. I don't really like to pick favorites. Like I guess. But anyway, what's um, first on your playlist? First, on yeah, all, well, all of your podcasts have released. A... <laughs> Alphabetically, it's ninety nine percent invisible because the numbers come first on my playlist. Um, uh, but so we can start there if you want. Yeah. But like that's one of the more famous ones that I listen to. A lot of people listen to ninety nine percent invisible. Um, it started with just one guy recording. Like it's it's ostensibly design a design podcast uh, about things like you know iconography of road signs and uh you know the uh like you know who invented the octothorpe which is now known as the hashtag like <laughs> stuff like that is like what they used to talk about but the longer the show has gone on it's kind of expanded its scope into like the entire designed world which is literally everything and it's gotten into more and more like issues of inequality and the way design is sort of like inequality is sort of often designed into the system by people who like it that way and what like guerrilla street sign makers can do to fight against you know bad city planning and you know it, it's it, there's a lot of things that go into it not every episode is strictly a history episode but uh they usually go into the deep history of any topic they're talking about and they've got this really broad sweep of uh, people and it's it's no longer one guy it's like a whole it's like 15 people um doing the doing the show now so i'm trying to grab the one that's similar to um i mentioned earlier when we were just talking on our own that stitcher did this update and i use stitcher as my podcast catcher and it deleted some stuff, but there there is another pop culture history one 
okay. that oh it's called decoder ring it's oh. it's a slate podcast yeah which is it kind of kind of like that similar thing like these questions that you would never think about the answer to like why is like what's up with uh acid watch jeans i don't know I don't, that's not a topic uh, they've done i don't know if they did that one like the one i just listened to i love decoder ring it's it's hosted by uh yeah it's a slate podcast produced by slate uh that wasn't on my list but yeah decodering is great uh it's really yeah. great what i just listened to was what's the deal with cute poop is basically what they spent 45 minutes talking about <laughs> and you know she got into it the hostess uh host willa paskin is her name like she went all the way back to like the early 90s when emoji was being invented and all the way back that's the beginning of cute <laughs> poop and now you've got like rainbow colored unicorn poop and uh, mm -hmm. it's yeah, anyway, it's very... Yeah, I I love those kinds of podcasts where, like, oh, yeah, I would never just, like, go look this up on my own, but they figure a way to make it so interesting. And 99% Invisible is one of those podcasts that does that so well. They just... um, What's the host's name? Uh, Roman Mars. Roman Mars. The, uh, he's the sort of the, the grandfather of all of that. But, you know, they've got episodes... It's like I said, it's like a team of like 15 people that are making that show at this point. So it's not him as like the main reporter every mm -hmm. time. Yeah, they, uh, they just like those deep dives mm -hmm. into something um, design-oriented, history-oriented, um, history of pop culture. Reply All is one of the podcasts that I also like. That's not It's not strictly history in that sense either. I know I have some problems with... Um, some some stuff about the hosts and reply all um gimlet media in general but um they do have several good um episodes that kind of do those weird strange deep dives into some historical topic um yeah those are those are always my favorites and i'm just like you matt like if i have some housework or cleaning to do or i'm walking my dog i'm always i've always got podcasts going and a lot of them are history like stuff you should know or stuff you missed in history like those those yeah. stuff you shoulds. Uh, I I used to listen to both of those, but I found the uh, for my taste the uh, commercial to the, the to, to podcast ratio was was off for me. Yeah, yeah. I, I it's one of the reasons I kind of stopped listening. I used to listen to uh, stuff you should know, um, and uh, whatever the one is that like stuff you missed in history class. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a great one. They have. Yeah, and, I and I've, I've listened to quite a lot, quite a lot to those. And if you go back, you'll you'll run into less of of that commercial <laughs> to podcast ratio if you go back to older episodes, mm -hmm. um, because older episodes weren't quite as bad. Um, so, yeah, uh, I know our. I I want to mention a few more. I know Jess earlier you asked about Land of Desire. Yeah. Uh, so as a French major, I, I um, demand to know. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, it's, it's basically just a French culture and history podcast. Like, it's really good. It's the lady is I'm trying to remember the name of the host. Uh, well, I don't want to say it wrong, so I won't say her name. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, she's just really into like French history and culture. And like, so she'll do like, I, I will specifically recommend a four part series called like the three Alexander Dumas, which is about Alexander Dumas, the the general who was a, like a Napoleonic war hero who got captured and spent like 
a long time in Italy. And then his son, the most famous Alexander Dumas, the writer of Three Musketeers, and most importantly to what I just mentioned, uh, The Count of Monte Cristo, about the guy who spends a bunch of time in jail. Uh, and then his son, um, Alexander Dumas, uh, <laughs> who was a playwright and perpetually embarrassed by his father's antics. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, I... Yeah. Sorry, I love Dumas. I love Dumas Senior as well. There's a great book about him. Um, I think it's just called Alexandre Alexand Dumas. Um, but I got into that because I was listening to a podcast about about him. So that is the next thing I'm downloading out of my queue. Anyway, sorry for interrupting. I just got really excited. No, it's great. I mean, it's 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 just so. I mean, and like like she's covered topics like you know what's the deal with all salts in the rain she's like done like uh she did a whole series about the Dreyfus affair you know there's the, there's a series called like uh a tour de france where she like took the the original route of the original tour de france in like 18 something and like what all the cities they stopped in and stuff like that and she's like well let's talk about marseille and like what's going on in Marseille and then you know whatever she talks about all kinds of stuff so that one's one's really it, it's 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 very light it, it feels like Provence it's very very light <laughs> and, and dappled sunlight it's just so pretty her enthusiasm for the subject that's yeah I I did not know about this podcast okay again for listeners it's called land of desire oh right? yes the land for, land of desire i think for, I think for listeners, the land of desire <laughs> yeah i'm definitely gonna seek that one out for sure uh <clears throat> have you ever listened to behind the bastards no it's an, so. it's another it's 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 very leftist oriented but behind the bastards takes some terrible people from history and does it like biography basically of of their life and all their misdeeds and mm -hmm. just like talks about the bastard throughout history all these terrible terrible people now content warning if you do look it up we're talking terrible we're talking yeah. like but history's got a lot of those <laughs> yeah got a lot of those. but it's it's always there's only so much you can cover you know, I, I taught a year of eighth grade social studies mm. and there's only so much you can cover in yeah. a year with students. Um, yeah. And there's only so much you can cover in 12 years with students. Um, Absolutely. And you gotta kind of seek these things out. There's so much I didn't know before I started listening to podcasts. Yeah, I I actually trained as a teacher in social studies and I, I did not uh, actually end up pursuing that career but like it's uh yeah i mean it's it's basically impossible to cover anything in any kind of depth based on like the you know, <laughs> you know you're starting in 1500 and you have like you know 26 weeks to talk about everything that happened since 1500 mm -hmm. you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> skim over some stuff and then like adults are like i never learned this in history class and i'm like no because we didn't have any time you're lucky or, that or... the mongols existed let alone like or you missed that day in class. You missed the day that we had a chance to talk about this. Right. You missed the day we talked about the Dark World Ages. Yeah. And so, you know, like, the Dark Ages. Th those those 800 years. Right. You missed that day. 
Exactly. Our day talking about World War One. There, like, there are so many social studies classes. Like, when you cover American history, as as a teacher, like, you typically start. Okay, I guess we're going to talk about the Magna Carta for for whatever reason. That's going to be the beginning of everybody's social because studies class. Trial by jury is still part of our system. That's where it originated. That's why you mentioned it. You're going to maybe get through the Civil War. Oh yeah. If you're lucky, get to reconstruction. And then maybe we'll take the last week when everyone's checked out of school and we'll zoom through everything from 1880 all the way to 1980. Good luck. <laughs> it's so <laughs> wild. And then these podcasts, they'll do a four part deep dive on Alexander Dumas, Dumas right. and Dumas. It's great. <laughs> or yeah, they'll do, they'll do a, here's a six part series on these three days. Oh, in, yeah. in this country's history. Those are great. Like, um, I, I, get I don't really know how much longer we're going here, but uh, uh, I do want to mention, I'll mention, you mentioned leftist leanings earlier. There's a show called Revolutions, which is another one of my favorites. That the, it's, um, Mike Duncan is the host there, but he kind of, he takes, he started, he's on his 10th revolution now. He covered, he started with the English Civil War, did the American Revolution, the French Revolution. He's doing the Russian Revolution now. Um, and like, he's up to like episode 46 or 47. And we're like to 1909, which is like eight years before the revolution happens. <laughs> and so like on episode 47, he's nine years before the revolution. Like, you know, so he's going real slow on this 10th one. But um, there's enough time there to really talk about like, what is Marxism? What was the beef between uh, Trotsky and Lenin? And like, even in the period that he's talking about, like before the revolution even started, they weren't friends. Well, you know? Everyone, so like, it, it, yeah, you've got to have podcasts to have a lot of time to do stuff. Everyone knows that Karl Marx was a Russian who killed like Anastasia or something, right? Because like, <laughs> <what happened. laughs> um, uh, some of <laughs> Some of the words that you said are accurate. <laughs> Karl Marx, yeah. right? No, Karl Marx was a guy. Like, like, like Ras Ras Rasputin was a Rasputin was a Russian. Uh, what is it? How did I hear him described? A Russian, um, sex crazed murder wizard, un or un unkillable sex crazed murder wizard. Well, that's true. <laughs> yes. That's all true. Some of those. Yeah, but it's accurate. it's. There's there's a little more nuance to that than. <laughs> uh, there's just there's one other podcast. Inter interesting your... stories, interesting interesting stories all around, and it's good when when they dive into some of the some of the detail that you don't necessarily learn yeah. in that one day in history class. There's one more podcast that was on your list, Matthew, mm -hmm. that I kind of wanted to talk about before okay. we close out, and that was Throughline because that talks okay. like very similar to what we're saying. There's a lot that goes into our, our news stories, um, you know, building on that information, you want to just like talk about why you put through line on that list? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's hosted by two, it's an NPR show produced by NPR hosted by like two non-white guys. Uh, it's like, a, uh, I believe it's an Iranian man and a Iranian American and like a Palestinian woman. So like they've got, it's not like they've got a axe to grind or anything like that, but they're just bringing like, these are definitely not like, you know, Stan Beauford of 
you know, East Coast school and like John, I don't know, Magruder of West Coast school, like they're, they're, they've got, it's got a bit of diversity to it. And they, it's called through line because they'll, they'll say like, all right, so, you know, there was this bombing that happened in here. And like, why, why is this thing that you may have heard about this week or last week or last month, like, what even is that? And so then they're like, well, let's wind the clock back. And like, let's talk about the through line of this. And they often, um, they're, they're often, you know, sort of that hidden history stuff. Like I missed that day in, in high school history class. So I didn't know that America supported dictatorships in South America uh, throughout the 20th century. And so like, but they'll talk about it. They're like, this policy in this year led to this strong man and this thing led to this, which is why you've got a crisis at the border. You know, like it's, it's a, it's a, the, the through line of the history. You know, these things don't pop out of nowhere when, you know, when a cable news wants to talk about them, they, they have a deep history. All, everyone <coughs> has a deep, a deeper history than the 24-hour news cycle on cable news is going to be able to deal with and this is what that's what the show tries to do is to try to draw the through line through these bigger values bigger uh, themes in history yeah I, I definitely wanted to put that up on people's radar because it's a really good podcast <laughs> it's good it's, it's well it's like supported by you know it's national public radio so like you know it's, it's definitely not like a handmade podcast like the land of desire is great coverage but she talks frequently about how she's recording it in her garage in her uh closet like that's her mm -hmm. recording studio like she's one lady show like npr has resources and they have research teams and they have librarian access and you know stuff that one person just mm -hmm. like to, hey wrapping it up full circle like you know it's sometimes it's fine to produce a show where you did your own layout and make a book that's printed on your own computer. And then it's also nice to be part of a team of 15 people who produce a really high quality product. So, mm -hmm. you know, they, they're both great shows, but one is obviously much more involved in being made. Yeah, this has been a really fun conversation, Matt. Uh, I really appreciate you coming along and uh, Craig has been suffering from trains going by, just so many trains. Uh, so many trains. I, well, I mean, talk about history, like Atlanta <laughs> only exists because of the railroad. So, <laughs> yes, I ha I've had a bad case of trains tonight. Um, I also apologize <laughs> for the snafu. There's going to be a little um, snafu in the video and audio from a little while back when um, I bumped a thing. Oh, um, is that, that what I sh happened? That I shouldn't have bumped. I need to figure out um, a, a better way to arrange things on my desk so I don't ex accidentally bump that because I've bumped that thing a couple of times on some different streams and it's gotten goofy. So anyway, yeah. sorry about that, everybody. No, it's okay. You, I, I, I just wanted to, to say, well, um, I think that it's a good time to kind of wrap things yeah. up. And Matt, well, do you want to talk about anything that you want to plug where people can uh, find you on social media? yeah uh well thanks first off i want to thank you guys for having me uh on tonight and uh talking about rpgs and uh you know it's it's great it's hobby and career so uh it's great to talk about uh the thing that we, we like to do and uh yeah the podcasts uh i'm down like we have another episode we talk about all the other ones we didn't talk about uh, right, exactly. but 
Um, if you want to know more about Wedding Games, uh, you can follow us on the Facebook or on the Instagram. And uh, that's where we put up our images of our books and talk about them and links to the stuff. And that's kind of where we're at. We um, have a website. Uh, it's Wedding Games uh, on Instagram and on the Facebook. And uh, yeah, we're working on our website because we haven't had one before. We're getting ready to get that going because we've got two releases uh, coming up this year. One is the, the campaign dossiers, which is more Never Going Home. That's more World War One craziness. Uh, one of those books features Rasputin, who we were just talking about, uh, because when you've got a, a murdering sex wizard, you've got to put him in your book about Eldritch Horror. Like, of course, it's, you it's do right there. I don't make and, the rules. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't make the rule, right? It's, uh, uh, and the other game that we have coming out this year will be Zhangxi, Blood in the Banquet Hall, which is written by Anna Chan and uh, Sin Fun Lin. And it is a 1920s era uh, Chinatown. You're a family in Chinatown. You're dealing with exclusion laws and racism and like corruption in Chinatown. And uh, not in the Chinatown, but like affecting Chinatown. Um, and also hopping vampires because, you know, what would be worse than dealing with uh, human problems than also dealing with supernatural problems? Yeah, very, very germane, very important game, I think, also coming out considering world events. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's uh, timely and, uh, you know, I don't know, in, like, I, I didn't, it shouldn't have to be so timely, but uh, <laughs> here it is. Uh, I'm excited about that game a lot. We had Banana on earlier. Mm -hmm. You can find me on Twitter at right Joska, and you can see me tweet about probably the Suez Canal, I guess. Oh, <laughs> like, <yeah. so. laughs> Just don't don't get it stuck sideways. Works great. Anyway. That's that's good. That's good advice for a lot of things. I I know, right? Don't get it in there sideways. It's just that's not that's bad. Um, and I'm Craig Campbell of Nerdburger Games. You can find me at Nerdburger Craig. Um, that, I think, was RPG R&D, huh? Yeah, it was. Thank you all for watching and joining us, and we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. <laughs>